may be seated. Our sermon text today is Ecclesiastes 6, verses 10 through 14. Originally, I was going to preach on the passage that was our unison scripture reading today, but we've been working through Ecclesiastes, and uh, as we've gone through it passage by passage, I, I looked at what the next passage was, and it seemed that it was a perfect fit, or at least it seemed that way in my mind, with Palm Sunday, this passage that we came across today. So I decided that we would stick to it. So let's read together Ecclesiastes 6.10 to 7.14. But first, let's go before the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we just ask that you now would uh, give us eyes to see your truth. Help us to know it, not just in our minds, but in our hearts. And use it for your purposes, Lord. Make us more like Christ Jesus. Help us to see him as he truly is. For we ask it in his name. Amen. Follow along now as I read from Ecclesiastes 6, verse 10 to 7, verse 14. This is the inspired word of God. Whatever is come to be has already been named and it is known what man is that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he the more words the more vanity and what is the advantage to man for who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life which he passes like a shadow for who can tell man what will be after him under the sun a good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting for this is the end of all mankind and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools, for as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the bosom of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word which is our only infallible rule for faith and practice. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God 
stands forever. If we were to split the book of Ecclesiastes into two halves, the passage that we've come across today is essentially the start of the second half. It's the second half of the book begins here, and it begins, you'll notice, with two questions. Two questions in verse 12. For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? The second question, for who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? The first of those two questions is essentially the, the focus, the thrust, the theme of today's passage that we're looking at, as well as the chapter or so that follows. We'll get to the second question coming up here in a few weeks. Things often don't work out like we think they should, do they? Sometimes they, they don't even work out like we think they will, much less like we, we think they should. We have little control over, over things of life under the sun, as we've seen in the past weeks. That's largely the message of Ecclesiastes. And the preacher tells us this message again today. And as a result, he wisely teaches us that we ought to do three things. We ought to expect the unexpected. We ought to exhibit patience. We ought to exude wisdom. First of all, as we start looking at expecting the unexpected, it's, it's interesting. He says in verse 10 that whatever has come to be already has been named and it is known what man is and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he the more words the more vanity and what is the advantage to man basically he says what is going to happen is going to happen God has already determined this he knows we don't know but he does and sometimes as it comes to happen we 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 kind of argue with him don't we we, we want to say God you know you sure that this is a good idea I think it would be better if we did this instead of this as if we have some chance of winning an argument with God we we can't win an argument with God, but that doesn't mean we don't try, does it? We, we still try. We, we fail to recognize the distinction between creator and creature, right? We must realize that that is a very important distinction. Otherwise, we will end up in frustration. We can't win an argument with God. It's actually a good thing that we can't because we, we aren't always the best at really understanding what is best for us. Sometimes we fail mightily in this. This is why it's good that God is God and I am not. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Bruce Almighty. I'm not necessarily commending it to you, but the, the idea behind it is that there's this uh, character played by Jim Carrey who, who uh, miraculously gets endowed with all the powers of God. He can do whatever he wants. He's in control of all things. And at first he thinks that this is really kind of neat, you know, because he can make whatever happens that, that, that he wants. Everybody has to bend to his whims and his desires, and he has complete control over whatever he wants to have control over. But he quickly comes to realize that it's not quite so good. You see, because there, there's a whole lot of weight that comes with that. There's a whole lot of of pressure that comes with it and there's lots of decisions that he thinks he would make them this way but in reality they don't work out that way you're better off doing it this way and and so it is 
with us. We, we think we want things one way, but, but we are really better off letting God be God. It's kind of like the, the old Chinese proverb about the man who, who was an old man who had a farm that he worked by himself with his young son. And they were poor and didn't have much, but they had one horse that they used to help work the farm. And one day the horse ran off into the woods and disappeared. And his neighbors gathered around him and they consoled him. They commiserated with him and they said, Oh, we're so sorry. What bad luck you've had. The old man said, Bad luck? Good luck? Who knows? And the next week, the horse returned. He didn't return by himself. He actually returned with a group of wild horses. And now he had all these horses that he could use for working his farm. His neighbors gathered around him, and they rejoiced, and they said, what wonderfully good luck. And the man wisely said, good luck? Bad luck? Who knows? Well, the very next day, his son, as he was working to tame one of these horses, was thrown off the horse and broke his leg. And the people gathered around him again. Oh, what terrible luck. The man says, bad luck? Good luck? Who knows? The next week, the army came to town, and they drafted into the service every able-bodied young male that was there. But the boy was left behind with a broken leg and was eventually able to help his father with the farming once again. Bad luck, good luck, who knows? We, we don't know. Obviously, there's no luck. It's God's sovereign plan, and we don't have a look behind the curtain, as it were, to see what is ultimately going on. We should let God be God. We don't know how things are going to work out. If we are left in charge of how things ultimately would happen for us, we would be incredibly short-sighted, only seeing things as they immediately are right before us. But the preacher wants us to know that things don't always work out as we expect. That's why we should, in a sense, expect the unexpected. He tells us in verse 1 of chapter 7, a good name is better than precious ointment. The ointment here isn't what I want you to get fixed on. I don't think it's so much ointment per se. It's just anything precious, really. He's saying a, a good name is worth something, worth more than something that is, is, is precious to us. He could have said it's worth more than lots of money, right? It's worth more than precious jewels. It's, it's worth more than precious ointment, he says here. This one's hard for, not, not too hard for us to understand. We, we get the gist of it. Sometimes we don't live that way, right? I think of a guy I used to work with when I worked at Enterprise. He was a manager of, of the branch uh, that I had used, I had worked for earlier, but didn't, didn't work for at this time when, when this happened. But we used to have uh, surveys that got sent out automatically to customers, right? Customer uh, satisfaction surveys. They'd ask how things were, and, and they'd get sent to them. Then we'd get graded, and our, our, our branches would get graded on how good our customer service scores were. And this one manager that I had previously worked for uh, decided that he was going to uh, kind of play the game. And so before he closed out people's tickets, he would go in and change their address to his address. That way, when all these customer service things got sent out, they all came to him. And he gave himself a perfect score every time. And he sent them in and he got promoted because his customer service scores were so incredibly high. 
right? He thought, this is going to be valuable for me. Well, what happened when he was found out and his name was sullied? He, of course, was fired. He lost his job, his reputation. He didn't believe this truth that a good name is better than precious ointment. preacher goes on, the day of death is better than the day of birth. Now this one might be a little more shocking to us. This one is a little bit more difficult because death is the result of the curse. It's a, a bad thing. Paul tells us that death is our ultimate enemy. And too often, perhaps, we forget this. Too often we forget this, but, but, but it is the truth. It is our ultimate enemy, the last enemy. How, how is it that this can be, that it's day of death is better than the day of birth. Well, first off, I think we need to realize that what he's saying here is not so much speaking about our own death, I think. Although, there is a sense in which we could say my death is even better than my birth, right? That's what Paul tells us, is it not? He says that for those of us who are united with Christ through faith, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, and to be present with the Lord is better by far. But I, I don't think that's the point that the preacher's making here. The point he's making is, is made a little bit more clear if we move on to verse 2 where he says, it is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. When he's talking about going to the house of mourning, he's not talking about going in a wooden box. He's not saying, if you're the body in the coffin, that's really good. What he's saying is it's better for us to go to that house to mourn with those who are there than to go to a party and to celebrate. That's what he's saying. In the same way I, I know it's true for me and I think most pastors I know would agree with me in this, that they find more fulfillment in conducting funerals than they do in conducting weddings. Right? Not because the one occasion is more joyful than the other, Obviously, the wedding is a more joyful occasion. But, but the reality is that at a funeral, as we enter into the house of mourning, there tends to be a much greater openness to spiritual truth, a, a mo much greater openness to receiving spiritual teaching. And I think that, that this is part of what he is saying here. He says it's better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind. The living will lay it to heart. He says we, we all are going to face death. We all are going to face it, every one of us. We can't ignore it. And death orients us. Orients us. It, it, it changes our perspective. It, it brings us into view of that fact that death is in front of all of us. And death is a much better teacher about life than birth is. Right? Because... Because a baby is born and everyone is joyful and it's wonderful and we, we celebrate and maybe dad gives out cigars, although I guess people don't do that as much anymore. But, but you know, everybody's excited and you make the phone calls and you send out birth announcements, it's all wonderful and, and everybody's happy and joyful. But life's not like that, is it? There are times when life is really hard and it hurts and it's painful and there's a one-to-one -one correspondence between people who are born and people who die, right? That is ultimately our end, each and every one of us. And so the preacher tells us in verse 3, sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. He's not saying never be joyful. He's saying in life, 
There are times that call for sorrow, and they are often more beneficial to us than those joyful times. That's what Jesus said to his disciples in John chapter 11 regarding Lazarus. You'll recall his friend Lazarus was sick. He was ill. He was approaching death. And they sent word to Jesus. And, and they said, Jesus, come. This friend, this beloved friend is ill. And if you would come, you can, you can heal him. And we read that when Jesus heard that Lazarus was ill, he waited two days. He didn't come right away. He waited. And then two days later, he told his disciples, okay, it's time to go now. Let's go. Oh, by the way, Lazarus is dead. He goes on to say this. For your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. See, what he was saying to them is, we're going to go there and I'm going to heal him. I'm going to make him well, but, but if I had gone when he was just sick and I healed him and he got better, you might be able to write that off as, well, he was sick, he got better, that's what happens, right? We get sick, we get better. You know, Jesus had fortuitous timing that he showed up then, but he says, no, we're going to leave no doubt here at all. We're going to let him die. We're going to let him stay dead. It's going to be two days after he dies that we leave. It's going to be a two-day journey. It's going to be four days by the time I get there. He will be not just mostly dead, right? But completely dead, all dead. Beyond that, there's another point. Chris shared this with me yesterday. There's an article about Lazarus that he shared with me that I found really wonderful. But in it, the author made this point. He said that Martha, who was Lazarus's sister, says to Jesus when he arrives, Lord, if you had been there, my brother Lazarus would not have died. The author said, true, perhaps, but short-sighted. Had the Lord been there and healed Lazarus, he still would have died, right? He still would have died just later. It's the common fate of all mankind because of the curse, because of our sin. We need to realize this. We need to wrestle with this. We need to grapple with it. We need to, to not ignore it. We need to be, be more comfortable with the, the fact that this is our reality. We need to not pretend that it's not the case. We need to not pretend it's no big deal. Because the reality is that we all will face death, and it is a huge deal. And that's why perhaps the preacher tells us in verse 4, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. You know, I was watching a movie with Jack the other day. Uh, it was the 1990s Western movie, Tombstone. And in that movie, it tells the story of the gunfight at the OK Corral and Wyatt Earp and Doc Holliday. And, and the guy with the the bad guy with a, the black hat is, is a guy named Johnny Ringo. And there's a scene toward the end of the movie where Wyatt Earp asks Doc Holliday, what makes a man like Ringo do the things he does? And Doc Holliday answers him in words that are rich with spiritual import 
says, a man like Ringo's got a great big empty hole right through the middle of him. And he can never kill enough or steal enough or inflict enough pain to ever fill it. And he's right, of course. We all have a great big empty hole right through the middle of us. It is what Blaise Pascal called a God-shaped vacuum that can be filled and only filled by God. Now, of course, we, we would never try to fill that with, with stealing and, and killing, right? But, but there are all kinds of other things that we do try to fill it with, right? We might try to fill it with, with fame and popularity. We might, might try to fill it with, with workaholism or, or drunkenness or greed or gluttonous appetites or illicit sex. We might try to fill this hole within us with all kinds of different things, we look for these things that they might usher us into the house of mirth, right? That they might bring us pleasure and happiness. But that pleasure and happiness that they bring is only for the moment. It is a, a fleeting happiness. It's shallow. It's ultimately unfulfilling. Far better to enter into the house of mourning. To mourn our sin. To mourn our brokenness. To mourn our complete inability to do anything about it on our own and to look to God to be our help our savior I think that's at least a part of what Jesus meant when he would later say blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted so the question is where do we find our comfort where do we find our comfort if it's not in this house of mirth and the preacher with Jesus would tell us that that true comfort lasting comfort real Meaningful, perfect comfort can only be found by creatures such as us in our sovereign and gracious and merciful creator and his son, Jesus Christ the Lord. If we are to know his mercy, we must know him as he truly is. We can't just know him in any old way. Karl Marx once called religion the opiate of the masses, and he is right if, big if, if by religion we just mean worshiping whatever old God we want to come up with. If that is what religion is, then indeed it is simply an opiate. If we want to know true and meaningful peace and comfort from God. And we must know God as he truly is. We have to know him as he truly is and approach him as he desires to be approached. And so we can't just jump into whatever idea of spirituality we might have, right? We, we can't just say, well, this seems vaguely spiritual. This seems vaguely religious, so I'll do it. We can't do those things. And that's leads us to our second point. We need to exhibit patience. And let me show you what I, what I mean by that. What is your natural reaction when somebody tells you you are wrong? I don't know about you, but I know for me personally, my pride kind of rears up inside of me. And, and I, I, I feel this longing to debate their judgment against me. I, I make excuses and I don't like it at all. That is what naturally happens. And yet, 
The preacher says here in verse 5, it is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. Many in our world will go along and invite us to join in their foolish songs, all the while ignoring our very real need for salvation on account of our sin. And I'm not just talking out there in the world. Even in the church sometimes you will, you will see that. You will, you will hear those preachers who, who have these messages. I'm not even going to call them sermons. I'll just call them messages that are filled with, with positive thinking and self-help and, and are essentially motivational talks that, that, that are of the name-it-claim-it variety. Right? And, and just, just think more about yourself. Speak it into being. Be more positive. And, and you need to know here today that the message of God's word and, and the job of a preacher is not to tell you how good you are or how great you can be. That is not it at all. It's not to tell you how much you can accomplish. It's not to build you up and make you feel good about yourself. It's not to fill you with self-esteem. The message of God's word and the job of a preacher is to tell you that you are a sinner and you are condemned in your sin and you stand righteously judged by God apart from the cleansing blood of Christ Jesus. And it is only if that blood washes you clean that you can ever stand before God. It is only then that you can find salvation. The idea that we'd have such positive talk type messages is not surprising. Paul tells us as much in his message to his young protege, Timothy. He says the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. They will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. You see, we do that all the time in our culture. If we find somebody who, who points us in God's word to something we don't like, we just say, well, well, I, I just won't pay attention to that part. I'll, I'll just ignore it. Or, or we rationalize it away. Or, or we just no longer listen to that preacher. We move on to another church. I can find another church that will tell me what I want to hear. And, and I'll just go there. And, and then I'll be happy. And, and my itching ears will be scratched, as it were. See, because I long to hear the song of fools rather than the rebuke of the wise. But we need to realize that that song is as the crackling of thorns under a pot, he says. You know, the thorns, they, what were thorns? They, if they were being burnt, they, they burn fast and they burn easy and they burn loud. You know, they, they pop, you know, as they pop, pop. You know, the thorns have that loud. That, you know, so, so it burns fast and, and, and easy and, and loud but it doesn't really emit much heat. It's, it's kind of useless. It doesn't accomplish much, and it is soon gone. He says, so is the laughter of fools. It is worthless. It is futile. It is like chasing after wind. Surely oppression, I think a better translation is affliction, drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. He says, even if we are wise, we can be tempted in these ways, but he says, remember this, better is the end than its beginning, right? It's like a 
painter starts working on a painting at the beginning, you have no idea what they're doing, right? It's like, what? I, what? What is that? He's kind of got some colors slapped up on the, on the canvas. I can't tell, but when he gets done with it, you can look at it, you can judge it for what it is, and you can see the beauty of the whole painting at the end. Better is the end than the beginning, and that's how we should be in determining what God is doing in our lives. It can be hard because sometimes it doesn't feel comfortable, it doesn't feel good, it doesn't feel right. We, we can't imagine what God could possibly be doing sometimes, right? When, when we come along and, and, and your son has leukemia, or, or you lose a job, or or your marriage seems to be falling apart, or a loved one dies when these things happen. You, you question, God, what, what is going on, God? I don't understand it. But the preacher urges us here, exhibit patience. God is at work. God is at work. We might not understand it when we look at it right now, and we might not even understand it later when we look back at it. Sometimes people will tell you that. Someday you'll look back on this and you'll see what God is doing. Maybe, maybe not. Either way, it doesn't change the fact that God is at work. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. So as you face trials, pray for patience. Pray for peace. We always pray for deliverance, right? We say, God, take this trial away from me. There's a time for that prayer. But sometimes perhaps we should pray for patience. Lord, help me to endure this trial. Not, Lord, pluck me from this fire, but Lord, help me to endure the flames of this fire, that you might burn away the dross, that you might make me more pure, that you might make me more into the person that you are making me, that you might teach me the lessons that you are teaching me. Pray for patience. Pray for humility to trust him. Realize your creatureliness before your creator. Realize your mortality before the immortal. And be not quick in your spirit, verse 9 says, to become angry, for anger lodges in the bosom of fools. It sounds a lot like the words of Moses in Psalm 90. He says that the years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. That's our final point. Expect the unexpected. Exhibit patience. Exude wisdom. Verse 10 says, Say not, why were the former days better than these? And this can be a danger to us, can't it? Can't it, can't it be a, a danger for us, really for anyone, but, but especially the older we get, for us to just think back to the good old days. Why can't it be like it was back in the good old days? Why can't it be like it was back then when everything was wonderful and everything was perfect and everything was golden? Why can't it be that way? Why were the former days better than these? The preacher tells us it is not from wisdom that you ask this. You need to realize that back then, yes, God was at work. And today... God is at work. 
When things look good, God is at work. When things look bad, God is at work. He is always at work in our midst. I, I hear people lament, for example, sometimes the, the fact that, that we've, quote, kicked God out of the schools, right? And we have all these problems because of that. And, and I always found that interesting, as, as if we have the power to kick God out of anywhere, right? As if we are so strong that we can make God bend at our bidding. Right? God is at work. Yes, sometimes that work, make no mistake, is a work of chastisement that he is working out. And we might not always like it, but we should not presume to think we are so wise as to be able to understand exactly what God is doing all the time. Rather, let us demonstrate wisdom, trusting him regardless of what our circumstances are, trusting him to work out all things together for good for those who are called according to his purposes. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. The advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Let us be wise. Verse 14 tells us that in the day of prosperity, be joyful. Yes. Rejoice when the situation calls for it. Rejoice and celebrate and be glad, especially knowing that we deserve none of it. It is all of God's grace. In the day of prosperity, be joyful, but and in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. We don't know what is coming and we don't know why it is coming just because something seems good in the immediate experience of it that does not mean good things are coming from it and just because things seem inexplicably bad right now it doesn't mean that God isn't at work for our good and I think nowhere do we see this more clearly than in Holy Week right beginning with Palm Sunday because on Palm Sunday, Jesus begins that first Palm Sunday, entering into Jerusalem rightly to the shouts and cheers of the people. <clears throat> they acknowledge him as the rightful king of God's people. They recognize him as the long-awaited Messiah spreading palm branches and even their cloaks out before him as he enters in along the road and they proclaim, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They cry out, Hosanna, save us now, son of David. They are worshiping him as he rightly should be worshiped. In Matthew 21, 11, we read, the multitude said, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. And there's two things I think we need to note at that point. Two things we need to note. First of all, that Jesus was, of course, a prophet. But he was more than a prophet. He, he wasn't just a pointer. He is the point. Right? Kevin DeYoung puts it this way. He says he's not merely one of the prophets. He is the one to which all the other prophets were pointing. So to call him a prophet and nothing but a prophet is to misunderstand at the profoundest level who this man is is beyond that he is a prophet and jesus knows this in matthew 23 37 he says oh jerusalem jerusalem 
the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you would not. You see, just as he enters the city that day to the worship of the crowds, he knows that even on that day that, that seems like more than any other day, a day of prosperity, he knows that quickly on its heels is coming the day of adversity. And he knows that both days God has made the one as well as the other. And this the preacher tells us in verse 14 he did so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Essentially this, we don't know what tomorrow brings. That's what he's saying there. We don't know what tomorrow brings. But what do we know? We know the one who brings it. We know the one who brings it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? Not, none can except for him, except for God Almighty. He can make even the most crooked paths straight. And that's what he did at the cross, is it not? Is it not what he did there where, where all things seemed terrible and he was doing it for our good? Child of God, remember this. If you remember nothing else, the evidence that Jesus loves you is not found in your circumstances, but rather is found in his cross. Remember that truth. One pastor in our denomination in closing here wrote an interpretive paraphrase of Ecclesiastes. He, he, he put it this way. He said, God gives us all our lot in life. He brings good at times. At other times, he stings us with adversity. But here's the point. We shouldn't let ourselves get out of joint when trouble comes or when we find it hard to make sense out of things. Just trust the Lord, my son. He always does what's good and right. He's always with us, whether day or night. Or perhaps we could just heed the words of the Apostle Paul, another pastor, who wrote to the church in Rome, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ. Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither life nor death, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. May we all remember this throughout Holy Week and beyond. Would you pray with me?
Lord God, thank you for these truths. Thank you that even when things seem terrible, we know that you are good. And even when we experience pain, we can know your joy. Thank you that your peace is a peace that transcends all understanding. May you with it guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.